0: Well, we know what it's like to feel worried and helpless about the state of our world. But we're finding comfort and inspiration from people tackling win-or-take-all economics and other root causes of climate change, inequity, and global unrest. Join us on the road from wasteland to wonderland. This is Part of Gold. In this episode, we're speaking with Ben Brangwyn and Inez Aponte, two residents of Totnes, England, both involved in the Transition Network. The transition
1: movement began in Totnes in 2005 as a community led response to the big challenges the world is facing. Now it has reached communities all over the world. Let's listen
2: in to Ben and Enos to learn what transition is all about. Okay, uh, my name is Ben Brangwen. Uh, I co founded Transition Network. Um, I was part of the original Totnes Pound team. And I'm also Dr. Bike in my town where I gift my skills as a bike mechanic to the community for the price of a pie or a hug or a poem. So my kind of um, inner sense of economics is very, very, very different from mainstream.
1: Awesome. So, Inez, please introduce yourself.
3: Uh, So my name's Inez Aponte. Um, I've been involved with the transition movement for the last 10 years. I have been interested in local economics and my work has been around the human scale development approach. I'm also someone who likes to organize things in my community that are just fun or interesting. So I've been uh, part of groups organizing uh, a land conference because um, the way we think about the the economy, we really need to think about who owns the land and what kind of uh, land ownership or stewardship uh, formats we need to have a fair Hmm, economy.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's almost... Fundamentally important. Absolutely. Yes,
3: yes, the conversation about land. And then also, in terms of how we, if you think of land as in our public spaces, um, last year I organized a street games festival um, because I'm really interested in how we actually reclaim some of our public spaces and how is that, what's the kind of economy of that? And in terms of human scale economics, Playing outside, being together with people, um, sharing are all ways of actually adding value to the human scale economy. So that's the work I'm involved in.
1: So we have a basic understanding, but please tell us, what is the Transition Network? What are you guys doing?
2: Transition was really an invitation to communities, um, what ended up being around the world, to reimagine their town and the systems that are crucial for people to uh, survive and thrive. And imagine what they would look like if we really paid attention to social justice, to climate change, and to addictions around fossil fuels. And they kind of manifested, first of all in England, and then to other English-speaking countries, New Zealand, uh, Australia, America, And then very soon other countries um, jumped on. Uh, Italy was very quick. Um, Japan was very quick. And it sort of mushroomed from there. And now there are transition initiatives in 50 countries all doing similar kind of things. Um, And the sort of initiative evolves from from a core group and then starts up projects looking at those crucial systems: the food system, the transport system, the education system, the care system, and very much so the economic system, and um, a whole kind of uh, community of practice, um, around, which is called reconomy, has uh, emerged from, from that as well. I think what we did is try and look systemically at at all things and and how they inter interlock and interreact. and uh, it's really clear that um and I think it's becoming increasingly clear that uh an economic the economic system as it's designed is not is not going to work for much longer. Or if it does, then we can say goodbye to a livable planet. I mean it's that serious, I think.
0: Yeah, so there's nine hundred and like twenty-two transition towns around the world, right? And the question is What does it look like when one of those initiatives gets started?
2: Uh, Usually it's citizen-led within a town, but there are municipalities, um, and particularly in France actually, who really take on board um, what's happening and and create a very collaborative um, arrangement with with the townsfolk. Um, And In fact, we see the the collaboration between the municipality and civil society as probably being the key piece to really scale up and we've got a project an international project that has um, sort of municipalities in transition as the as the title of it uh, and there's something and there's something in Brazil in Spain in Italy and a couple of other countries who are all sharing ideas uh, in, a, in, in quite a well-funded and very very well organized um, Collaboration to see what works best.
1: Has this somehow led already to a policy shift in one of those towns?
2: Well, yeah. And there's a town called Ungersheim. Um, I believe that's Belgium, isn't it, or is it one of the or
1: Germany, Belgium or Germany? I, that's my guess, but I don't I know. I actually
0: think it's France. I think it's it might be France. the border between France and Germany. <laughs> yes, oh, Europe! It's all one big mishmash to me. <laughs> okay, start again. <laughs> well, I'm pretty
3: sure it's on. It's just on the border between France and Germany, towards.
2: Yeah, so where the municipality made a. Um, a very strong commitment to transition principles and uh, did things like instead of a school bus, they have a school horse and cart. I mean, it's not a big place, but the kids go to school in a horse and cart. As a Fantastic. Kind of,
1: I would have loved that. You
2: know, I, I think it's, um, yeah, it's a, it's a kind of one of those things to, to show how much work petrol does for us. And if you take petrol out the, out of the, the whole, you know, fossil fuels out of the equation, just things look really, really different. And, you know, maybe there'll be uh renewable energy ways of um transporting people that um, you know, don't use fossil fuels and we can keep a lot of it in the ground. But it's just a kind of a playful way of manifesting that. And they've created the municipal building, I think, is uh probably not zero energy, but it's um a magnificent build that looks Looks like it's a human scale, um, ecologically sound building as well.
0: Horse and buggy school buses, the cutting edge of progressive social policy. You know, I did some research on this town, Ungersheim, which it turns out is actually in France. It's actually a small village with a population of around 2,000 people and has a long history of mining potass, which is used in making potassium for agricultural use, and also in the salt that's used for treating ice on icy roads. And at one point, the potass mines employed 13,000 people in the region, and the last mine closed in 2003, crippling the local economy. But since becoming a transition town and the transition network, Ungersheim did all kinds of initiatives, way beyond just a horse and buggy. So we have a list here of 18 points, and they actually
1: did all of them. We're going to point out a couple of the list. The list is available in the
0: show notes. So if you want to have a deeper dive in this, you can go to our show notes. Here we are. They assessed all public buildings for their energy consumption. They replaced all cleaning products in public buildings with eco-friendly cleaning products. They
1: changed the catering arrangements so that the local primary school now serves 100% organic meals every day, including snacks. And, of course, they launched a local currency called le Radis, the Radish. They also changed all the public lighting in the village to low-energy bulbs, leading to a 40% reduction in energy use, as well as turning some streetlights off after midnight. I mean, that really makes sense. You know, why do you need streetlights running all night?
0: Unless you're in New York, of course.
1: Well, that's the city of light, but in the rest of the world, it really doesn't make sense.
0: I thought Paris was the city of lights. <laughs> <laughs> I think that New York is a city that never sleeps. Whatever, it's amazing <laughs> how much is possible. Okay? It is really amazing. They've done so much in a But it takes
1: time. transforming someone's point of view. And you think this is what Ungersheim really did. Yeah, We wanted to ask how does that kind of paradigm shift work?
3: For me, it started 12 years ago. My son was a year old. And um, I'd, just seen, I'd just seen that film, An Inconvenient Truth. And, uh, you know, the moment when the graph goes up and the temperature's rising. And, and, and in my mind, I was just thinking, oh, he's going to be 10, he's going to be 20, he's going to be... And I just saw literally his future disintegrate. Um, so it was very much a sort of dark night of the soul for me. And it took me quite a long time to work out what to do. But I knew that I couldn't do what I was doing before. And I needed to find something that was going to contribute to the world in a positive way. Um, there was a lot of kind of anti-activism. And I knew that I didn't feel right for me. And I wanted something that was positive and uplifting, regardless of the conditions that we were in. Um, and that's when I came across a transition movement. And it felt like a kind of can-do, positive, visioning the future and getting on with stuff. And that's what I needed at the time. So I then started volunteering and, um, sorry, <laughs> and, uh, and and sort of that's kind of how things have, have grown from there. Um, and it's interesting, the question that you asked earlier, you said something about why did you get involved as to not right. getting involved, why others aren't getting involved. And actually that has been pretty much the central question to the lot of, a lot of the work that I've been doing on human scale development. Because um, in the room when I was watching the film were several of my friends and I went home and my life had fallen apart and I had to do something. And they went home and they were also affected by the film, but they just somehow carried on. And I was fascinated by that because I thought, I knew these were good people with all the right intentions and they'd had the exact same information as I did. Mm-hmm. So why didn't they have the same response? Not that my response was necessarily correct, by the way, but I was wondering why it hadn't reached them. And in the human skill development approach, um, what I've learned since then is that, The way that we meet our needs is kind of tied up with the economic system. So if we don't have a choice to meet our needs any other way than just by buying that stuff or buying an identity, then we're gonna carry on. So the more tied up we are with that system, the harder it can be to start making the changes and, and following the values that you have. So when I work with people, I don't assume that people are ready to make changes. It's looking at what are the conditions that are going to allow you to make that change so that you you still have a sense of identity and you have a sense of identity that's actually aligned with your with your values. Yes. So that's really been my kind of quest for the last 10 years is how do we make it easy and uh, for people to change, which I think the transition movement does really well because it creates that sense of community, which is a need that people have was if you have to rip away from everything that you've done before, which you now know is bad and go into a vacuum without other people to say, Hey, we're supporting you on this journey. That's incredibly hard. And I expect everyone to fail at that. But this is where I think the strength is of the transition movement is that we do things together.
2: The the other piece of that mosaic is Inner Transition yeah. which recognized very early on that people can't just change. There are high-level addictions that need to be overcome. And what are the models for overcoming addiction? There are high-level defenses against the grief of recognizing the predicament that we're in. How do we enable people to get through that grief barrier? So Inner Transition did all that, and that probably was I think the, the you know there are two parts. There's the rolling up the sleeves and getting things done, and then there's a, like let's have a look at really what's happening inside, inside the people. Our sense is that the communities that have had the energy or the stuffing kicked out of them by pretty much the industrial growth system. So I would say um, mining towns, fishing towns that don't have an economy anymore. They're they don't the level of empowerment that their citizens and townsfolk have seems to be less than those who haven't, you know, been kind of punished by the economic system in that way. Hmm.
1: So, you know, what is interesting to us is the £21 pound note. This is the complementary currency you guys started in Tartus. Can you tell us more about it?
3: Yes, so my potted history... <laughs> <laughs> Um, I guess it started with uh, with Rob finding this, uh, this moment of inspiration when he saw an 1810 Totnes Union Bank pound on the wall in a building in Totnes. And that sparked him off to think, well, you know, we've done it before. We printed our own money. Why didn't we start printing Totnes pounds, keeping the money local, and uh, let's see what happens. So, That's what he did. They printed 300 pounds. They got a speaker in for an event and they got 18 people, 18 traders on board to accept them. Um, And the way Rob describes it, he said uh, none of these pounds probably made it into the economy because they were all collector's items and they ended up on the fridge. But that kind of started the ball rolling. So then there was another issue of, I think, 6,000 pounds and more traders on board. And then uh, I think by that time, maybe 70, and then it's grown. And so there's been several issues of Tottenham's pounds um, with different designs. And um, at the point where there's 12,000 have been gone into circulation, And it's brought a lot of kind of magic and pride and and tourism to the town. So there's been something that's grown there and a lot of awareness about local currencies because people still ring up John and say, oh, how about the Totnes pound? There's a lot of excitement, regardless of the impact it actually had on the local economy. So that's been the kind of fertile ground that's been created. But in terms of the impact on actually keeping money local, um, it suffers from the same problems that every uh, currency that's tied to the sterling has is that actually it's just convenient to use a pound and i was going to shop locally anyway and so in terms of it actually circulating it hasn't it hasn't done that job um but it's done it's done other things for us do you want to add anything to that ben thing?
2: i can quantify the sort of maximum uh, economic impact in the town we did a calculation of how much money there was in the town and how many totnes pounds were circulating and it worked out that it was of the economy was in Tottenham's Pounds.
0: Since speaking with Ben and Inez, we learned that the Tottenham's Pound didn't have the economic impact that was expected. In fact, recently it was discontinued altogether. But we did get a chance to ask them some of the other lessons they learned about its impact on the community.
3: My role was to come in at a moment when uh, the people who were running the Totnes Pound have said, we've kind of done enough. It's been a great experiment. What do we do now? Um, shall we fold? And I said, no, let's not fold. Let's, uh, let's just see what happens if we do something different. And so I um, have been asked to research some other options. And my particular interest is, I guess the social justice thing, um, this idea that, uh, which what, which is what I was very inspired by when I heard about the Torika in Ghent, um, was that uh, how might people start to earn a currency for doing great things in their community? So the things that now are kind of invisible, all the caring and the exchanging and the informal learning, how might you start to be rewarded for that? And then, but by doing things that are actually making our lives better, because now effectively, you could be destroying something and making lots of money. And it's, the money system is not aligned to our values. Uh, so what would happen if we did that? So I am looking around at different ways of doing things, which is why I'm here. There's lots of great people here with great ideas, and I want to pick everyone's brains. Um, but I also feel that we're at a point in Tottenness where we, we need to... Um, really break it open a little bit and, and be bold and just start experimenting. Um, Rob at the moment is looking into uh, a project that's happening in London called The Bank Job. I don't know if you've heard of it. No. Um, it's really interesting. Basically a bunch of, uh, a couple of artists have uh, designed a uh, a local currency. Now it's actually meant to be bought and put on the wall. It's a piece of artwork, but the money that they're getting They're using it to uh, buy people's debt and to pay their debt off. Um, And in addition to any extra money they make is going into uh, local voluntary organizations, uh, local charities. And that to me, just the fact that people start to understand what debt is as an industry and then how you might buy it from a much lower rate and then pay it off I mean, these are kind of educational concepts that very few people uh, know about, but also it's a really creative way to do it. Mm-hmm. So we're looking at maybe we'll bring something like that to Totnes. Um, there's some great stuff happening in the, in the US, um, the uh, Mutual Aid Network there. Um, my friend Stephanie Rierich was involved with uh, the Time Bank there that's used um, for the uh, youth court. They have a, a kind of school to prison pipeline there that they're trying to break by bringing a youth court in, which is then that any mentoring that they get is is paid for by the time bank. So there's all sorts of creative ways. And for me, it feels very important that we somehow are able to communicate the message about money just to anybody so that we get away from the technicalities of it and just talk about how do we exchange in a healthy uh, life-affirming way with each other, and maybe it's already happening. And how could we highlight where it's happening, and to start to show that kind of ecosystem of exchange? Because Totnes is a is a town where people give a lot to each other, but we we kind of haven't mapped it in a way that that shows up how powerful and how amazing mm-hmm. we are. So, what would happen if we started doing something like that, and really inviting people into that money conversation? Because I think it really has to shift very, very radically. Um, at the moment, we're t- still trying to play a game that we didn't make the rules for and we're never going to win it because it's rigged against us. Right. What if we just say we're not playing that game anymore, we're playing this game and everyone join us in that. Yeah. So that is the kind of direction I'm hoping we, we might go because money has a certain feeling about it, but there is this sort of exchange thing that we do. And, and how do we acknowledge those exchanges without necessarily interjecting money into them. So I think it's also taking care to acknowledge that exchange happens that's not called money, but that we need to value it, but maybe not put a number on it. And all the kind of complications of what, what that stuff is, I think is really, really important.
2: I've got something to say about that from my Dr. Bike experience. So I have a sign up. So this is in the market on Saturday mornings. Um, I'm there with all my tools and a bike stand. Um, I'm reasonably well known there, and I have a sign up which says, "Here's what I take in exchange for my bike work." It could be free. it can be pies. I've got sterling written down there with a cross through it, so people really get that I'm not taking sterling. And there's a a, a huge difference in the um, in the kind of the, the nature of the relationship that I have with the people um, I do this work for, depending on whether they're trying to give me money or whether they're engaging in a conversation about how do we barter um, or am I hungry or what's my favorite drink or do I like chocolate? In, with with cash, and, and this has literally happened, I fixed somebody's bike, they pulled a tenner out of their pocket, they stuck it in my top pocket, walked away, barely a conversation. Mm. Yeah. The difference of relationship and kind of depth of exchange that happens if money's not there, is it's kind of really extraordinary and and i might be tired on a friday night by the time saturday afternoon comes about and i'm packing my my stuff up and cycling my trailer back down home i'm uplifted and energized and kind of you know feeling good about Humanity.
3: Because yes. money breaks the relationship. Yes. It says, I've finished my indebtedness to you. I'm done. Right. Was actually the whole notion of, we, we kind of need a healthy indebtedness to each other. Yes. Rather than, it, it, to have a life without indebtedness is actually to live a life of loneliness. Because to be indebted is that I, I have a relationship with you. You owe me one. It's really okay. And, and I, I don't know if you're familiar with David Graeber's work, um, Uh, He wrote a book called Debt, The First 5,000 Years. And he talks about debt being the thing that is actually keeping those relationships alive between people, not the crippling debt that is now, you know, dictated from above. In fact, in those cases, what would happen, there would be a jubilee and all the debt would be written off. Yes, because it's insane to cripple your economy in that way. But we need to be indebted to each other. And, And it's slightly... And this is the kind of question that I think I'm, I'm bringing is how do we measure our credit worthiness in a different way, in our trustworthiness as people? How would we start to think about, oh, this is someone who is bringing something to the community. They deserve to have their, their needs met in whatever way possible because we can see this is what in tribal situations would happen. You give as much as you can because you know you're going to be looked after. Whereas now we try and take as much as we can because we think the money looks after us. And and it, it it isn't. It's enslaving us. So to actually be able to turn the whole piece on its head, I mean, that's my, my vision. I don't know how we're going to do it, but that's cut. the vision. <laughs> we get the idea. Yeah.
0: This, to me, is one of the most important things we need to understand about the money system and the way it is designed now. Fundamentally, money breaks down the connection between people. In other words, it, it makes Are transactions objectified and more oriented toward selfishness and independence and competition and away from kind of the other kinds of exchange like community, connection, collaboration?
1: I love this too. What Ines says about our debt to other people being an important part of what connects us. If we can treat each other like human beings and we can openly recognize that, yes, we live in a society where we actually count on one another to help each other to survive, we might end up with a much, much healthier world. That's absolutely for sure. We're an independent, listener-supported podcast. Thanks
0: to our producer, Riley Paul. Support us by rating this episode and sharing with all your friends. And to learn more, join us at potofgold.world. I'm Stephanie Overberg And I'm Mel Wymore. Thanks,
2: Thanks for listening.
0: listening.